Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Two scriptures to read together. Before we get to James chapter 1, verse 1, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we'll find the name of James, surprisingly, in this text. And then we'll look at James chapter 1, verse 1. But the first place I want to read together is from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. In Mark 6, speaking of Jesus, it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And then to James chapter 1, verse 1. Same name that we encountered in Mark 6. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So whenever I watch a show on my iPad or I listen to a podcast on my iPhone, I'm very thankful for that little button with the arrow and the 30 in the middle of a circle because I can fast forward 30 seconds if there's a scene I don't want to watch or if they're talking about something boring that I don't want to listen to. And if we admit it, those tiny little beginnings of all of the epistles, we tend to hit that little button and just fly past them. But in this greeting, this little flyover, get to the good stuff kind of verse, it's actually filled with something that's richly applicable and readily relevant for everyone in this room right now. From this simple text in James 1.1, It'll give us a two-part outline that describes the attitude that every member of the church has to possess. And the two points that it'll give us, the attitude that it'll express, what each one of you has to have is simply these two things. A low view of self and a high view of the Savior. A low view of self and a high view of the Savior. As we get to know this guy, James, I guess we could ask a couple of questions. Who was he according to the Bible? And then, who was he according to himself? If we ask that first question, kind of who was James according to the Bible? Well, one thing that we miss is that our English name James, which is one syllable, hides the fact that he bears the name of the great Old Testament patriarch, Jacob. But another thing that we would notice from Mark chapter 6 is that he was the Lord's brother, or we could say the Lord Jesus' half-brother, because they had the same mother and not the same father. This is recorded in Matthew 13, verse 55, and we read it in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. 
The other things that we learn about James from the balance of Scripture, and we will get to this if you're in our ABFs and going through Acts, that we haven't hit it yet in the narrative, is that James is the absolute pillar of the absolute most important church, which is the church at Jerusalem. He's the guy there. He's the leader there. It goes so far as in Galatians 2, it says that James is the pillar of that church in Jerusalem. So he's the brother of our Lord Jesus. He's the pillar of the most important church. That's who he is according to the Bible. But let's ask this question. Who is James according to himself? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing James says about himself is that he is a doulos, a servant. The Greek word here is from the verb to bind, to be tied up or chained up. The doulos, the servant, the will of the servant is now bound to the will of the master. The word simply means a slave, not someone who's uh, by their own choice on the payroll, but someone who's seen as the property of the master, someone who lives to do the master's will. When James says that he's a bondservant, he's saying that his will is wholly surrendered to and submissive to the will of his master, his savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. James calls himself a servant. While others in the church call James the pillar of the church, while others in the church maybe brought up the point that James was the brother of Jesus, James says, I'm a servant. You ever get into an argument and think about later, you think about what you should have said? I don't know when the last time you got in an argument was. Maybe you got in an argument about who's going to win the Super Bowl, like anybody cares, or you get in an argument about politics, and you, you, in the live moment of your argument, you make two points, but then when you get home and the other person's gone, Oh, you think of four far superior things that you should have said. We've all been there and we've all done that. What James should have said, what James could have said, James, an apostle, and not only an apostle, but the pillar of the most important church. And James, not only an apostle and a pillar, but James, the brother of Jesus. I, I grew up with the guy. I've known him longer than any of you. But the mark of the great man of God is that he has a low view of himself and an absolutely stunningly high view of his Savior. The mark of the man or the woman of God is that they think much of God and not much of themselves. It's been said that the truly great man never thinks that he's great and the truly small man never thinks that he's small. Let that sink in. The truly great man never thinks that he's great. The truly small man never thinks that he's small. You see, our pride is a house of mirrors that distorts who we think we are. Humility, particularly humility in a leader, is a precious virtue. It's a precious gift. 
And here we have the brother of the Lord Jesus, the pillar of the church, expressing that he himself views himself as a servant. Do you identify yourself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? So I suppose the question to ask, and you and I don't ask this question enough, but I suppose the question to ask is, well, I, I, I kind of think I have a servant attitude. How do I know for sure if I have a servant attitude? That's the question to ask. How do I know for sure if I have a servant attitude? And the answer to that question is surprisingly simple. The answer to that question, how do you know if you have a servant attitude, is simply this. By the way you react when people treat you like a servant. We seem obsessed with our rights. Not only that, but we seem obsessed with our number of followers and our likes and our streaks and our bubbles and our numbers or whatever it is. Not so, James. He says, it's not about my name. It's not about the number of likes that I have. It's not about the number of followers that I have. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right in line with that other great apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 3, well, I did this and James did that and somebody else did that, but all of us are nothing. It's only God who causes the growth. I wish we could capture the spirit in that uh, beautiful Christian poet, Barbara Ryberg, who said, I do not ask for mighty words to leave the crowd impressed, but grant my life may ring so true that my neighbors shall be blessed. I do not ask for influence to sway the multitude. Give me a word in season for one soul in solitude. I ask no place of prominence where all the world can see, but in some needy corner, Lord, there let me work for thee. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James had a low view of himself and I said we just had two points to the outline, a low view of self and a high view of the Savior, but I know many of you uh, can't stand me because I don't outline clearly and you are basically worshipers of the outline other than worshipers of what you should be worshiping. So in this first point of the outline, I've got an A, B, C for you, okay? I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. I don't like it, but I'll try to do it. So under the low view of self, I got an A, B, and a C about what it means to be a servant and to be humble. A would be this. A servant is humble enough to sound like Jesus. A servant is humble enough to sound like Jesus. Last week, I was reading a kind of boring academic book. The title was A Technical Introduction to the Non-Pauline Epistles. This is, I was trying to do a good job of preparing like how to understand the book of James. This is all technical introduction to the book of James. I didn't <clears throat> enjoy reading the book. In fact, while I was reading the book, I experienced what you've experienced many times while you're listening to me preach. I just, that southward kind of nod, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> but then, Right when I was basically falling asleep over this book, I got to two sentences that made me just say, my Lord and my God, this is what I want. He said this, the epistle of James contains more verbal resemblances to the teachings of Jesus than all of the other New Testament epistles put together. Second sentence was this, James seems to be so soaked 
in the specifics of Jesus' teaching that he reflects Jesus' teaching almost unconsciously. Wow. In other words, it's saying James isn't the epistle that just flat out exactly quotes Jesus all the time. Rather, James seems to have been so saturated in the teachings of Jesus that just about every third line that he writes sounds like Jesus. Not because he's just like slavishly kind of copying him, but because he, he's so filled with the spirit of Jesus' teaching that when he talks, he sounds like Jesus. Oh, I want that to be me. I want to know my Bible, specifically the Gospels, so well that it just comes out, even, even when I'm not trying to be pious or I'm not trying to sound like Jesus. James sounds like Jesus, not because he's trying to, but simply because he's been with him so long that he sounds like him. Wow. What a, what a, what a heart attitude to aspire toward. Years ago, uh, I was at a pastor's conference at a huge church that has a, a popular pastor. And the first session started and we sang a hymn. And then after the hymn was over, somebody came up to the pulpit to welcome us to the conference and give announcements. And I was sitting in the back and I, I couldn't see that well. And I had never met this mega popular pastor before. I had maybe seen his picture on a book. And sure enough, he starts talking and, and uh, welcoming us to the conference and sounds exactly like I've heard him sound on all the sermons that I've heard, even though I've never met him. Well, I came to figure out after the announcement's over that that guy got down and then the actual pastor got up. I was wrong. It wasn't the pastor, the first guy that I heard. But he sounded just like him. Well, probably because he had been his associate pastor for 30 years and they just spent so much time together that they sounded like each other. Which brings me back to that line from that boring book. James seems to be so soaked in the specifics of Jesus' teaching that he reflects it almost unconsciously. The expressions of Jesus, what if they became such a part of your heart, such a part of your kind of emotional insides, and such a part of your worldview and the lenses through which you view things that you would sound like Jesus without even trying to? I think and I think you agree. We have enough people who sound like their favorite political commentator. We have more than enough people who sound like this or that personality. Oh, for more church members who sound like Jesus. Humility, humility makes you humble enough to sound like Jesus. There's a B under this first point. And letter B, I would fill in like this. A servant is humble enough to say what needs to be said. A servant is humble enough to say what needs to be said. James and his epistle is rugged. James is not subtle like a poet. James is stubby and blunt like a two by four. The letter is very rugged. Sound, it sounds a lot like Jesus, who sounded a lot like John the Baptist, who sounded a lot like the Old Testament prophets. And the Old Testament prophets, who we end up hearing the echoes of them in John the Baptist, who we end up hearing the echoes of in Jesus, who we end up hearing the echoes of in James, are all of a piece because they are unafraid to rail against iniquity and injustice. 
They are very ferocious in their defense of the poor and the abused. They make bold assertions and strong condemnations against those who have disregarded the word of the Lord. This is what Jesus did. This is what James does. You read the epistle of the James, the epistle of James, and you get the sense that this guy was A, an acute observer of human nature, and B, he was the kind of cat who when he sees something, he says something. Are you the kind of person who sees something and then says something? Or are you the kind of person who sees something and then tries not to get involved? You know the difference. Some of you, maybe it's two spouse, uh, you know, the spouses, or you, you, you've got a friend and you're together and you watch a little injustice. Someone cuts in line or someone has 18 items in their cart and they're only supposed to have 15 or whatever it is. And you see that. And one of you is like, uh, I'm not going to make a scene. I'm not going to get involved. And the other of you is like on your way. And, and the, the sort of uh, quiet peacemaker one is like trying to grab the elbow. Don't go over there. Don't get involved. Don't do it. But the one who sees it, they see something. They have to say something. They say, I, I can't stand for this injustice. I'm the kind of person who has to just say something about it. Well, certainly that can be pride. It can be an inflated self-importance that makes you say something. But, you know, it can also be humility. Honestly, it can also be humility that makes you say something. Because instead of the fear of man, and instead of just trying to keep everyone happy all the time, you, um, you want to say and do what's right. Are you humble enough to say what needs to be said? Man, James says a lot of what needs to be said. And actually, specifically, he says it to the rich people which in kind of, you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to, to make sure that everything stays comfortable, that's the rich and powerful are probably not the ones that you want as your enemies, but he just lays it out. He's, he's humble enough to say what needs to be said. The fear of the Lord dissipates and evaporates the fear of man. His prizing of heaven and eternal life eviscerates sort of trying to grab as much gold as he can down here. And he says what needs to be said. A servant is humble enough to say what needs to be said. A servant is humble enough to sound like Jesus. And then let her see. A servant is humble enough to surrender all. A servant is humble enough to surrender all. By using this term doulos, this term slave, James is saying I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm absolutely sold out to do his will. What Jesus says to do, that's what I'll do. What Jesus says to say, that's what I'll say. Where Jesus says to go, that's where I'll go. A servant basically says, I'm a person who has made one choice and that one choice forecloses all other choices. I'm gonna serve Jesus and whatever he says is what I'm gonna do. Remember 1 Corinthians 6? Do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A simple verse, but it's those five words in the middle of that verse that we should never forget. They're, they're small words. You are not your 
own. You are not your own. You are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6, because you've been bought with a price. The best, or kind of a, a, a famous in recent church history understanding of that verse and what it means is, is by uh, the missionary. Before that, he was a famous professional athlete. You know his story, C.T. Studd? Here in America, we play baseball and football, and we eat chili dogs, and we drink Coca-Cola. In England, they play cricket, and they have tea and crumpets in the middle of their cricket game, whatever that is. But this fellow, C.T. Studd, was a, was a world-class cricketer, cricket player. And uh, he left it all to serve in Sudan and then in the Congo. It would be exactly like if Patrick Mahomes wins today and tomorrow morning he says, I've retired from sports and I'm moving to the poorest, neediest part of the world and I'm just going to spend all my time there promoting Jesus and his good will among those people. When they asked C.T. Studd, who graduated from Cambridge and was a world-class athlete, why are you leaving this to go to the Congo, to go to Sudan? This was his answer. I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I had never really understood that if he died for me, then I no longer belonged to myself. Redemption means buying back. So now I belong to him. It was simple, C.T. Studd says. It was simple. Either I had to be a thief and keep what was not mine, or else I had to give everything up for the one who bought me. This is what it means to surrender all to Jesus. It's not even so much like this big commitment of the will that we make. What it is, is this big recognition of what Jesus has done and growing in conformity to the reality of the gospel price that was paid on our behalf. A servant is humble enough to surrender all. This choice forecloses all other choices. You cannot leave the options open. If you've surrendered all to Jesus, you can no longer say, uh, I'm going to do what I feel like doing. Or maybe even uh, another way to put it, which may be helpful in our day and age, you can no longer say, uh, the world says this about sex and gender. The world says this about money and power. So I'm going to go along with that. If you have surrendered all to Jesus and you are not your own, you are no longer free to go the world's way about sex or gender or money or power or any of the rest of it. Have you come to the place in your life where you've said, God, it no longer matters what the world says. It only matters what you have said. Have you come to the place in your life where you can actually say, God, it no longer matters what I feel like doing. It only matters what you have called me to do. The stunning thing, the surprising thing, is that freedom comes through 
that kind of servant-hearted sacrifice. That's the amazing truth of the gospel, where Jesus says in a hundred different ways, it seems like, only, only the seed that dies really, truly lives. It's only by the surrender to Jesus that the true freedom of humanity is reborn. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. That's what we're talking about. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. My will is not my own till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach the monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. This is the only way, the way of the servant, the way of humility. Well, that's our first point from this wonderful verse that we don't want to fly over, that we have a low view of self. The second point is that we have a high view of the Savior. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The 12 tribes in the dispersion, the dispersion is... It actually, as we're going through Acts, we're just beginning Acts in our ABFs, you'll see the dispersion happen in Acts. The gospel is preached, persecution comes, and the church is scattered. The gospel is preached, persecution comes, and the church is scattered or dispersed like so much seed, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you'll see the dispersion uh, recorded in the book of Acts. And th these are the people to whom James is writing, to the, to, the, to the first Jewish but now Christian people all throughout the dispersion. The point here is that as he writes to them, he has this high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. The epistle begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. James does not mention Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ very often in this epistle. But we've already seen he's, he, he's sort, of, sort of channeling the spirit and the voice of Jesus all throughout this epistle. But he mentions him right up front. The whole epistle is going to mention behavior, justice, generosity, speech, caring for widows and orphans, money, prayer. There are a dozen topics in the book of James honestly, that could be ripped right out of our headlines, right, af, right out of what people are arguing about, about justice and the economy. All sorts of contemporary emphases. But look from the beginning. Everything is grounded in being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By mentioning God and Jesus and putting them on equal terms and then adding Lord, which is the Old Testament word for God, James is affirming here the deity of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The description in this verse was actually utilized by the church fathers to argue against the Arians in the first and most important church councils of all of church history to, 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 for the church to define and clarify the divinity of Jesus Christ. And he says, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take Jesus first. Jesus is the human name. It was given to him at his birth. 
It speaks of his saving work in the incarnation. Matthew 121, you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sin. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, and it relates to salvation. He's Jesus. This is his human name. But then he's Christos. He's Christ. This is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. From Psalm 2, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. So he's the man, Jesus, and yet he's the fulfillment of all of these divine prophecies. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ becomes the first Christian confession. You'll hear it in Acts 2, verse 36, as we study through Acts and ABFs. Jesus is the Christ. It's the very first thing that the Christians confess together. But you see, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord matches servant, master. It carries all the implications of deity. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word Lord is the ineffable name uh, Yahweh is translated with this word Lord. The word Lord occurs 14 times in the epistle of James because he's Lord and master and ruler. And what he says is what we have to do. The call of the gospel and the mission of the church is to call disciples to, to follow the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew, that angels ever bore, all are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set our Savior forth. His is the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to stop and think about something. Like I said, sometimes we just hit the fast forward and we just kind of go on to some other part. But if we really stop and think about what this says, that James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James, who grew up as the brother of Jesus. And I want you to stop and consider just one thing. James, who when he writes this, is a servant of Jesus Christ. James, who when he writes this, is a believer in Jesus Christ. James, who when he writes this is a member of the church, there was a day not too long before he wrote this when James was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and not yet a member of the church. The Bible actually says in John chapter 7, John chapter 7 is the feast of the tabernacles, depending how you date the, or depending what calendar you see in the book of John. I put John chapter 7 as like maybe six months before the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says in John chapter 7 that the brothers of Jesus did not yet believe in Jesus. We just, I don't know, we think that, Everybody in the Bible just always believed in Jesus, but that's not the case. James didn't believe in Jesus or follow Jesus. James knew about Jesus. Of course James knew about Jesus, but he didn't believe in him. He didn't trust him yet. What happened? What happened to make James cross that line between not believing in Jesus, just knowing about Jesus, and actually believing in Jesus? What happened was that Jesus died and rose again and everything changed. 
Jesus died and rose again and resistance melted. Jesus died and rose again and unbelief fell dead and living, vibrant faith came alive and blossomed. James didn't believe. But then he sees Jesus crucified. He sees Jesus Christ risen as Lord and Savior, and he believes. And the historian Josephus says that, that uh, James died a martyr's death, says that he was thrown off the temple, and then after his body was shattered on the ground, they came and beat his shattered body because they hated him so much. Another ancient writer, this is precious, another ancient writer named Hegesippus. That's a great baby name, by the way, if you're pregnant. <laughs> if you see me afterwards, I'll give you the spelling. But this guy, uh, Hegesippus, he's, he's the one that gives us this, this uh, quaint expression that James had the thickest knees of anyone in the church. He says that James' knees reminded him of the knees of a camel. And the reason why is because James was always found on his knees praying to Jesus, his Lord and Savior. And I mention that because I, I have people who don't believe in Jesus yet. They know about Jesus they don't believe him yet. And you have those people too. And I want to tell you from the word of God that there may be a day coming when they cross that line and come to believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. The mission of the church is to share that message verbally and then to back that message up by the way we give, the way we live, the way we forgive, the way we show generosity, the way we show righteousness, the way we welcome the stranger, and the way that we love. We all have unbelievers that we pray and wait and hope for their salvation. And I've got to believe that some of us, those precious loved ones who don't know the Lord Jesus yet, they may, they may be the most resistant to him that we could imagine, but I wonder if one day they will have the knees of a camel because they can't stop bowing before Jesus, the Lord and Savior. May he do this as he builds his church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may the seed that is sown in weakness by a flawed man preaching a perfect word, may it be raised up in power by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we have a low view of self, humbly repentant, and may we have a wonderfully exalted view of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.